Well, good morning. I'm honored and excited to have this opportunity to speak with you all this morning. And in fact, not long ago, I never would have anticipated myself standing up here today like I am. As many of you might also know, when Aaron and I first came to New Life Church in late June, we weren't even looking for a different church to go to. But God made it clear to us that he had other plans for our lives. And one of the ways that God made that clear to us was by working through so many of you to make us feel welcome and at home here at New Life Church. So I just want to take this opportunity to thank you from both of us uh, for making us to feel at home. So speaking of God having other plans for our lives, we're going through the book of Ruth. And as we've seen so far, God clearly had other plans for the lives of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz than what they may have anticipated. And so far we've described God's role in the book of Ruth as one as providence, where Sarah defined providence for us last week as God's sovereignty operating alongside human decision and action in order to bring about God's purposes. And I think we've seen quite a bit of God's providence so far in this book. Now if you go back to Andrew's sermon, Andrew told us that God is never passive, but always working. And in this story, he's working to turn sorrow and tragedy in the lives of Naomi and Ruth into triumph and love. Now, Andrew also showed us how the book of Ruth demonstrates God's love and care for his people, a term that we called God's hesed. And he defined hesed as a covenant love that describes God's loving, merciful, kind, good, and benevolent ways. I've also seen hesed described as a simultaneous expression of kindness, love, loyalty, faithfulness, mercy, grace, and compassion. And so last week, as Sarah walked us through Ruth 2, we saw examples of hesed, especially in Boaz's actions toward Ruth. And we also saw, as Sarah told us, that Boaz's actions resemble what God does for his people. Drawing in the outcasts, extending his hesed toward them, and inviting us to take refuge under his wings. So as we go through Ruth 3 this week, we're going to see that our story takes a bit of a dramatic turn. We'll see that Hesed is clearly visible in the actions of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. But there's also some kind of odd or unconventional behaviors. Why does Ruth go to the threshing floor by herself at night? And what is she doing as she's talking to Boaz? What's, what's her point there? But as we dig into these kind of strange actions, we'll see how God used those actions to bring about his good purposes. And we'll also see the love that has been extended to us and how that love and the one who gives it are our reason for joy. But before we get into that, let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with a spirit of thankfulness. We are thankful for the many ways you have shown your hesed to us, for your faithfulness to forgive us of our sins, and for the freedom that we find from this world by living our lives for you. We also thank you for your word. We recognize that it brings us life, and we humbly ask for your wisdom and guidance as we study the story of Ruth. Let your message be proclaimed this morning. And let us all walk away with a deep hunger to know you 
and your word in greater measure. Amen. So normally, of course, at this point in the sermon, we would go through our scripture for the day. But today we're going to do things a little bit differently. And the reason why we're going to do things a little bit differently is because Ruth 3 actually presents us with three distinct scenes uh, as we go through it. And each of those scenes is going to give us examples of hesed as these individuals interact with each other. And it's also going to pose some questions for us to consider and questions that we will hopefully answer by the end. So like I said, we're going to look at each of the three scenes individually. We'll talk about, we'll read the text, we'll discuss what's going on, and then we'll pose some questions. So let's begin with verses 1 through 6. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. So right away here in verse 1, we see Naomi's concern for Ruth, that she must have a home and be provided for. Other translations word this a little bit differently, saying that Naomi seeks rest for Ruth. I know sometimes we may not make much of the word rest, but the Hebrew concept of rest is one that is rich with meaning. Think back to Genesis 2, where we're told that God rested from his creation work and created the Sabbath. It's the same word for rest. And this importance of Sabbath rest is reiterated in Exodus 20, when we're given the Ten Commandments and told to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But rest is also used as a symbol for God's promise, or even God's promised land. Psalm 95 It's mostly about worship, and Sarah walked us through a sermon on that not long ago. But the psalmist closes by encouraging his readers not to harden their hearts like the generation of the Exodus did. A generation who, because of their hardened hearts and because of their lack of faith, God prevented them from entering the promised land, stating, they shall never enter my rest. So Naomi's mission of finding rest for Ruth It's nothing minor. She's seeking blessing, peace, and joy for Ruth. And in doing so, she expresses the love, kindness, and benevolence of Hesed. So let's look at Ruth's response. In verse 5, she responds, I will do whatever you say. And in verse 6, the narrator tells us that Ruth indeed did everything that Naomi had commanded her to do. So why would Ruth be obedient to Naomi? Well, at least partly because she trusted her mother-in-law. But I think that Ruth's obedience also reflects her trust in God. As you may remember in chapter 1, Naomi prayed a blessing over Ruth, that God would grant Ruth rest in the home of another husband. So as Naomi seeks rest rest for Ruth here in chapter 3, she's really kind of acting to answer her own prayer. Ruth likely recognized that Naomi was working to answer her own prayer 
and perhaps recognize God's providence working through Naomi's actions in order to bring about his good purposes. So Ruth could obey Naomi out of trust both for Naomi and for God. So then Ruth's obedience was an expression of both loyalty and faithfulness to God as well as Naomi. Two terms that we used earlier to describe his head. <clears throat> so but before we move on, let's take a minute and discuss the threshing floor, which is introduced to us here in verse 2. So in ancient Israel, the threshing floor was the place where cut grain would be processed in order to separate the valuable kernels of grain from the worthless, inedible chaff that surrounded it. Now, each town would generally have at least one threshing floor, would be open to the public most of the time, and often they were large enough that multiple groups of people could be there threshing grain at one time. And the threshing floor itself would just basically be a hard, flat, smooth surface, and the cut grain would be thrown onto this surface, and then livestock, typically cattle or oxen, would walk over it, and this walking or trampling by the livestock would begin the process of separating the grain from the chaff. Now at that point, a winnowing fork, basically a pitchfork, would be used to pick up the grain, toss it in the air, allowing the wind to carry away the chaff while the heavy grain fell to the floor. And so this relied on wind, and wind of a good speed uh, that was strong enough to carry away the light chaff, but not so strong that the grain itself would be carried away too. And so this is why it would generally occur at night. That was the time where the winds were just right. <clears throat> so this fact that the threshing floors were used at night and often by multiple parties, typically men, usually led to, or often led to, an undesirable situation, one of prostitution on the threshing floor. We see reference to this actually in Hosea 9, where God compares the nation of Israel to prostitutes on a threshing floor. So Ruth, as she goes to the threshing floor at night, is taking a little bit of a risk here. Had she been seen at the threshing floor that night, it's likely she would have been assumed to be a prostitute. Similarly, if Boaz had been seen with Ruth, it's likely that it would have been assumed that Boaz was with a prostitute that night. And we can see Boaz's concern for both his own reputation and Ruth, and we'll get to this in verse 14, when he says, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. So reputation was actually not the only thing at risk here. As you might imagine, especially in ancient Israel in the time of the judges, nighttime was not the safest time for a woman to venture out by herself. <clears throat> Recall back in chapter 2, Boaz told Ruth to stay in his fields with his workers so that she would be safe, communicating a sense of risk to Ruth even during the daytime. <clears throat> so you can imagine, at night, alone, how much more the risk to Ruth would have been. And again, we see this reflected in Boaz's words this time in chapter, or sorry, verse 13, when he tells Ruth to remain with him until the morning. So to recap this first scene, we know Naomi's intentions were good. She's trying to find rest and a home for Ruth. But was it wise for Naomi to send Ruth to the threshing floor at night as opposed to approaching Boaz at some other time and place? Maybe not. But if we recognize God's providence, we know that God can work with human decision and action even when the decision and action may not be too wise. 
to bring about his purposes. So how might God use the Ruth, the actions of Ruth, her risk to her safety and reputation? Well, we're going to hang on to that question, and we're going to get to that a little bit later on, and we're going to add to it as well. But for now, let's move into verses 7 through 13. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. And you may have noticed that the words redeem or redeemer are used frequently in this scene. In fact, six times in seven verses. So let's take a quick look at the ancient Israel practice of redemption to give us a better idea of what we're working with. And there's actually two types of redemption that are at play in the book of Ruth. One, which we'll talk about next time in Ruth 4, deals with redemption of the land. And it's covered in Leviticus chapter 25, but basically, anytime land was to be sold, the expectation was that it would be bought by the nearest relative. The second type of redemption, and the one that's uh, applicable to us today, is through marriage. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6, states that when a man dies and leaves a widow, another man from the deceased man's family should marry the widow and provide her with a son to carry on the family name. Now, this marriage was not a legal requirement, so if people disobeyed, they weren't breaking any kind of law, but it was generally expected that they would do so. So with that in mind, this institution of redemptive marriage, Ruth's actions are maybe a little bit easier to understand for us. So simply put, Ruth's actions toward Boaz represent a marriage proposal. In verse 9, we see Ruth ask Boaz to spread the corner of his garment over her. Now in ancient and even some modern Middle Eastern cultures, this act of spreading one's, the corner of one's garment over a widow was symbolic of claiming her as a wife. This may sound familiar to you, this term. As we went through the book of Ezekiel recently, Ezekiel 16, we saw that God described his love for Israel by stating that he spread the corner of his garment over her, entered into a covenant with her, and made Israel his own. All language that reflects marriage. There's actually even more going on with this phrase, spread the corner of your garment. You might recall in chapter 2 from last week, Boaz prayed a blessing over Ruth, stating that she had come to take refuge under God's wings. And the Hebrew word translated as wings in chapter 2 is the same Hebrew word translated as corner of garment here in chapter 3. 
And so for the second time, we see sort of somebody being called upon to answer their own prayer. So by using the same word, Ruth is calling upon Boaz to answer his own prayer of blessing for her. That God would protect and repay her for her hesed and a prayer that could be answered through their marriage. Still in verse 9, notice Ruth's word that Boaz is a guardian redeemer of our family. So Ruth is not claiming Boaz as her own personal redeemer, but rather is recognizing the family connection that exists between herself and Naomi and Boaz. In these words, Ruth is also showing that she's just as concerned for her mother-in-law Naomi's well-being as her own, making her own marriage proposal a display of his head towards Naomi as well as towards Boaz. Now let's take a look at Boaz's response. As you might imagine, he's kind of blown away by this proposal. So in verse 10, he identifies her actions as kindness, or has said, toward him. And then he says why he identifies it as has said. Because it's pretty clear that Ruth could have married another man. Another man who was younger and perhaps more wealthy than Boaz was. But she chose Boaz. And by that choice, Ruth was showing loyalty. She was remaining loyalty to her family. Sorry, remaining loyal to her family. She was remaining loyal to the man that had previously showed her said, and she was remaining loyal to God's institution of redemptive marriage. <clears throat> so the Boaz then responds to Ruth said by showing her said in return. And in verse 11, Boaz says, I will do what you ask. Yet Boaz, being a man of standing, as we saw in chapter 2, recognizes a problem that needs to be addressed. There is another guardian redeemer that exists, one who actually has the first right of redemption. So Boaz intends to give this man his first right in accordance with God's plan for redemptive marriage. And at this point in the story, we know that Ruth and Naomi will indeed be redeemed, but we don't know who's going to be the redeemer yet. And so to recap kind of the second scene, in her marriage proposal, Ruth has good intentions. She's trying to live in accordance with God's plan for redemptive marriage. But at the same time, she actually goes beyond what Naomi had told her to do. Naomi told her to do as Boaz would instruct her. <clears throat> and in doing so, Ruth also broke all the rules and customs of ancient Israel. As you might imagine, it wasn't typical for a woman to propose a man then, just like it's maybe not typical today for us. But she also did so not knowing how Boaz would, resp would respond. There is definitely no guarantee that Boaz would say yes. After all, Boaz, even though he was a guardian redeemer, had not yet approached Naomi or Ruth about marriage. And Ruth probably didn't know why. Perhaps she thought that Boaz was reluctant to marry a foreigner, a Moabite. So with her marriage proposal, Ruth is taking a risk. She's risking rejection in doing so. Let's ask kind of a similar question. If we recognize God's providence, how might he use Ruth's bold proposal in order to bring about his purposes? We're going to hang on to that one too. Uh, we're going to get to those questions very soon, I promise. So let's finish the chapter with verses 14 through 18. 
So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So here in this third scene, Boaz continues to show his hesed. And in this case, it's a material blessing. Six measures of barley so that Ruth would not go back to Naomi empty-handed. So there's definitely some hesed showing his care for Ruth and Naomi in the material blessing itself. But this is also a symbol of his plans to follow through with his promise to ensure their redemption. And so as the chapter closes, there's a sense of excitement or joy with Ruth and Naomi. But it's brief, and there's also a little bit of uncertainty. Ruth and Naomi now know, both of them, that they will be redeemed, but they don't know if it's going to be Boaz or this other relative. Naomi assures Ruth that Boaz will take care of the matter that same day, and in fact he does. So they don't actually have to wait long. But this, the way this ends does kind of rain, raise a question. How does God use waiting and uncertainty in our lives? So we're going to add that question to our previous two. And just to give you a reminder, first question was, how could God use Ruth's presence at the threshing floor at night, which was a risk to her safety and reputation, for his good purposes? And how could, Ruth, how could God use Ruth's marriage proposal, which was a risk rejection for her, for his purposes? Well, the answer to that question actually lies in digging in a little bit more to this idea of the threshing floor. So the Bible, several places, uses the threshing floor as a symbol of judgment, where the kernels of grain, which represent God's people, are separated from the chaff, which represents those who reject God and worship idols. And we see this imagery several places in the Old Testament, just to name a few examples. Psalm 1, Hosea 13, Jeremiah 51, and maybe you noticed this week, Isaiah 29. The symbolism seems to have been present throughout much of Israel's history, and in fact, we also see a really good example of it in the New Testament. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist declares Jesus, or describes Jesus, sorry, as using his winnowing fork to clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, of course, recall that Ruth was a Moabite, one of a people who rejected God and worshipped idols. So in the context of the symbolism of the threshing floor, Ruth, would, or the Moabites, would be considered chaff, rejected by God to be burned with unquenchable fire. But in her journey, Ruth has separated herself from the Moabites. She pledged her life to God, and she had displayed said toward both Naomi and Boaz. She had become one of God's own people. So she had become like that valuable kernel of grain to be gathered into God's barn. So how do we answer our first two questions? 
How could God use Ruth's actions and her risk to her safety, reputation, and rejection for his purposes? Well, remember that Boaz was sleeping next to a pile of grain, a pile of grain which God had already given him as a blessing following a long period of famine. Now, through Ruth's risks, God then had the opportunity to present Ruth alongside that pile of grain as being like that grain, a blessing to Boaz and in the symbolism of the threshing floor, one of God's chosen people. In other words, God could present Ruth, who though previously an outsider, was now unworthy of being Boaz's wife and participating in the institution of redemptive marriage. Recall the words of John the Baptist that we just mentioned, that Jesus gathers his wheat into his barn. This is the best part of the story. Jesus has chosen and identified us among his grain. And further, much like God presented Ruth as his own to Boaz, Jesus presents us as his own to the Father. Hebrews 7 and Romans 8 both say that Jesus intercedes for us to the Father. 1 John 2 refers to Jesus as our advocate with the Father, And 1 Timothy 2 refers to Jesus as the mediator between us and the Father. So Jesus is our advocate, the one who intercedes with the Father on our behalf in order to present us as one of his own people. Now he does this not because we deserve it, obviously. We make poor decisions, we're prideful, we commit selfish, selfish acts and sin regularly. But Jesus does this purely out of his loving kindness for us, his hesed. And as our advocate, Jesus assures us that he will see to our redemption. And that assurance brings us joy, and Jesus himself then is the cause or the root of that joy. Then I think of the word joy, especially in this season, I go to the story of Jesus' birth. And the angel coming to the shepherds in the field, proclaiming joy that the Messiah had been born. But the angel was proclaiming joy not based on anything that Jesus had yet done, but rather solely on who Jesus is, Emmanuel, God with us. There's actually a parallel to this joy that the angel proclaimed to the joy that we have. In both cases, the joy is based on a promise and a promise that requires waiting before it will be fulfilled. Remember that from the time that the angel proclaimed joy to the shepherds, it would be 30 years before Jesus would even begin his earthly ministry. And in the meantime, the faithful had to wait and trust in their Redeemer, just as we wait and trust for our Redeemer to return. So joy then is less about outcomes and more about our security in the faithfulness of our Redeemer. You might remember we've got one question we haven't answered yet. What's the reason for the waiting and uncertainty to close out Ruth chapter 3, even if it was for a brief time? So that Ruth and Naomi could rest in a state of joy, knowing that their future was secure in the faithfulness of their Redeemer. Now this joy that we receive and experience is not something that's meant to be kept to ourselves. We are to extend hesed and joy to others. 
I think of Jesus' words in John 15. Love one another as I have loved you. And because of Jesus' loving kindness, we can trust him. And like Ruth in chapter 3, we can show said toward others even when that calls us to take risks. It's risky to share our faith. It's risky to show hospitality and charity to strangers, neighbors, sometimes even friends. And it's risky for us to leave jobs, to leave homes, or to leave people in order to answer God's call to us. The flip side of that, of course, is that we don't always know what God's call for us involves. Maybe not the specifics of it. I know that's something I struggle with. But we do know we're supposed to take actions to show his said toward others. And we can also know, as we see in the actions of Ruth, that if we take risks to show his said toward others, that God, in his providence, will bring about his good purposes. So we can take those risks with joy, knowing that our fate is secured by Jesus, the one to whom we should proclaim, just as Ruth did to Naomi, I will do whatever you say. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving the story of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz so that we could have this opportunity to understand you and your ways in the world. We thank you that you have chosen us to be agents of your love, your said to the world. And we thank you that you have sent Jesus to us, who died for us and continues to advocate for us. Let us recognize the security and joy we have in Jesus and respond in obedience in order to show his loving kindness to the world. Amen. There is almost no better song we could sing after that sermon on joy. (laughs) We are going to sing joy to the world. Please stand with us, but I want you to hear verse 3. No more let sin and 